We're continuing a series on James this evening, and tonight we'll be reading James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 this evening. This is God's holy and infallible word for us. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We're going to walk through this passage in three steps tonight. We'll reflect first on the glory of favoritism, and second on the beauty of the law, and finally on mercy boasting over justice. Now, in the first few verses of this chapter, James addresses the topic of favoritism, and he puts three people in front of his his audience. In verse 1, he gives us this brief picture of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, and then in verse 2, he talks about a rich man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and also a poor man wearing shabby clothes. Now, James' exact words for that rich man are a gold-fingered man wearing shiny clothes. When we read that he was wearing a gold ring, we shouldn't picture just one ring. This guy had every knuckle covered with rings. His hands are full of gold. And the word that's used for fine clothes there really means shining clothes. This is a word that's used to describe the appearance and the clothing of angels. This is a guy who looks good. When he walks in, the room lights up. But this, this rich man really just has a gold skin stretched over an evil heart. When I was thinking about these concepts this week, the term Goldfinger kind of triggered something for me. So I went Googling for it. And there's actually this Bond movie with a villain called Goldfinger. Now, Goldfinger is kind of the standard Bond villain. He's a wealthy and powerful man, and he's a gold dealer. He, he buys and sells large quantities of gold. But he's also quite a nasty guy, as all Bond villains are. 
He cheats at cards. He cheats at golf. He cheats at everything he does. He smuggles gold, and he murders people routinely. And of course, since he's a Bond villain, he has this plan to blow up Fort Knox and take advantage of the ensuing economic and financial chaos around the world. So that Bond villain from Goldfinger kind of fits the image of the guy that James wants us to see here in verse 2. This is not a man you want to be on good terms with. He's shiny, but his glory only goes skin deep, and there is a nasty heart underneath. Down in verse 6, James asks his audience, Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, we don't know all the historical details, but it's pretty clear that James has heard that rich people are taking advantage of his readers. And in that time, it was common practice for the rich to be tremendously oppressive to the poor. If a poor person ran into trouble and needed a loan, they would have to pay unbelievably high interest rates. And if they ever missed a payment, they would have to pay unbelievably huge penalties. And if they defaulted on the loan, they could lose all of their possessions, and even they and their whole family could be sold off as slaves. The glory of the rich gold finger in James' image is just a trick of the light. This is a man dressed up in angelic, shining robes, but inside he has the heart of a devil. He exploits other people endlessly. He drags people into court. He buys off the judge, and he walks away with whatever verdict he wants. He even mocks and slanders the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. This is not a person that James's audience should want anything to do with. But the poor person that James mentions in that same verse isn't a great person either. Now, the particular word that James uses for that poor man's clothes is pretty strong. Shabby is one way to say it, but really this word conjures up images of filth and just nastiness. This man and his clothes are the sort of thing that give us kind of a guttural, yeah. In high school once, I was the editor of a school newspaper, and we sent a couple guys downtown to do some interviews, get some stories, and they talked to some different people, but the most memorable one they came back talking about was this homeless guy. And this was a guy you picture as the worst case homeless person. He reeked. His breath and his clothes were just full of alcohol. He was covered in dirt and grime. It was a hot day, but he had three different ripped-up jackets on. His pants were half falling off, and he was just terrible to be around. Shabby did not do that scene justice. And as my two reporters talked about this experience, you could tell they had really been turned off by this guy. They just had this guttural sense of blah, and they just wanted to walk away and never go there again, no matter what, ever. That's what this poor man in James looks like. It's a gracious act, and it's a real trial of patience for someone even to say, okay, you can stand here, or you can sit by my feet. This man is not a better option to hang out with than the rich man. You wouldn't want to be around either that Mr. Goldfinger or this Mr. Grimy. The person you would want to be around in these verses is, as James puts it in verse 1, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's a little bit unusual that James would use exactly that phrase, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. 
but he wants us to see a picture of Jesus next to the rich man and the poor man. That gold-fingered man in shiny clothes is really a gold-skinned devil of a person, but the glory of Jesus is not just skin deep. Jesus' glory shines out from the very essence of who he is as the Son of God and as our Lord and Savior. James is hinting to us that if you want to see real glory, don't look at Goldfinger. Look at Jesus. That is the man you want to honor. That is the man who deserves the place of honor in your life and in your church. Now, part of the glory of Jesus comes from the fact that he died and suffered for an unworthy people. Unlike that rich man who took advantage of the poor and oppressed, Jesus went out of his way to care for them. In Philippians 2, it tells us that Christ emptied himself. He became like nothing. He went all the way down into death, and because of that, he has a glory that goes above all other glory and a name that is above every name. And someday, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, says Philippians 2. Now, verse 5 tells us that God chose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. In the Bible, God has a special care for the materially poor and the needy. And we need to hear that from James. God cares for the poor, even the filthy, disgusting people who give us a guttural sense of just yuck. God cares for them, and he takes care of them. Poor people sometimes end up blessed with the best lives of faith because God is at work on their behalf and because they have no choice but to depend on the Lord for everything. But we can also hear an echo of the Beatitudes here where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. After Adam, all of us are pretty grimy people. We are all poor, dirty, yucky people before God. But when we realize our poverty before God, he is able to work in and through us. When we focus on the glory of God, God cleans us up. He exchanges our shabby clothes and poor lives for garments that reflect the glory of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And then when we turn our eyes of faith from our glorious Lord Jesus Christ to the rich and the poor people around us, we see them in the light of the glorious grace and faith that God has given us. And in that light, whether Mr. Goldfinger or Mr. Grimey comes walking in the door, we should stand ready to welcome them in the faith, the fellowship, and the true glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now, as we move forward with James, he turns the focus from our glorious Lord Jesus Christ to a summary of God's royal law in verse 8. James quotes Leviticus there to say that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. And when we heard God's will for our lives earlier in this service, we heard Jesus give that as one of the two great commandments. The greatest commandment, of course, is to love the Lord our God with everything we have. But then along with that, we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And James affirms that we need to do that. And he tells his readers that if they show favoritism, they've broken the whole law. If they do everything else right, but they show favoritism in this way, they have broken the whole law. If you commit this sin or any particular sin, says James, you are still a lawbreaker. 
Now, James sounds a bit harsh to our ears here. He's saying, if I do one little tiny thing wrong, I have broken the whole law. How does that make any sense? Well, let's reflect on that question through a story. A few years ago, I watched a Mr. Bean movie, and I really didn't like it. So if you're a Mr. Bean fan, you probably want to just cover your ears and go la, la, la for a couple minutes, because I really didn't like that movie. But anyway, Mr. Bean is a comedically awkward English character. And in the movie, he's a security guard at this high-end art gallery in London, and somehow he ends up accompanying this picture called Whistler's Mother to a museum in California. And that picture, it's a picture of a woman, Whistler's mother, as you might guess from the title, and it's one of the most famous and valuable American paintings of all time. But in the movie, Bean sneezes on the painting, and then he takes paint thinner to the painting to try to get the snot off. And he ends up removing a big spot of paint right where that woman's head is. Now, of course, this beautiful, expensive, historical piece of art is just destroyed by that. And all of us watching that movie with me had a terrible time with that scene. It was supposed to be funny, but it kind of just made us all go, oh, that's awful. And then to make it worse, Mr. Bean finds some paint and he draws this little stick figure woman's smiley face in the space that he'd wiped out this beautiful painting, which just makes the whole thing that much worse. Once you've wiped away the original painting, the beauty is wrecked, and you can't make it whole again, especially by drawing stick figures. Now, in the movie, Mr. Bean eventually replaces the original painting with a sort of mocked-up poster he gets from the gift shop of the museum, and it works out okay for him. But as a viewer, you know that's never really going to be the same again. The true beauty of the painting is destroyed and gone forever. Now, God's royal law is a bit like a beautiful piece of art. The whole thing hangs together. It's valuable. It's beautiful. All the parts come together to create a vision of life at its best. It's like a beautiful painting. It's like a gloriously beautiful vase. It's like a favorite Christmas ornament. But with all of those things, if you smash just one part of it, you've ruined the perfection of the whole. It's not like you can just wipe a face off a painting and then replace it. It's not like you can smash a hole in a vase and still have the whole thing be beautiful and useful. The law hangs together. If you stumble and break part of it, you've destroyed the beauty of the whole. And this works this way because keeping the law isn't about checking off some sort of cosmic list that God's given us. The keeping of the law, the beauty of the law, is about the covenant relationship that we have with God. In last week's morning service, I talked about how God bound himself to Abraham and his descendants through a lasting promise. God has entered into a relationship with us as his people. And when we act against God's law, we're devaluing and damaging that relationship. That's why later in Matthew 5, after the Beatitudes, Jesus says that if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. And if you call someone a fool, you're even in danger of the fires of hell. Even those little sinful acts mar the beauty of God's perfect law and the beauty of the relationship that he wants to have with us. Ultimately, keeping the law is about keeping the love. The great commandments, according to James and Jesus, are to love God and to love our neighbors. And if we show favoritism, 
if we suck up to the powerful, or if we ignore or take advantage of the weak, we are failing to love our neighbor, and so we are failing to live up to the requirements of God's law. The beauty of the law is that it opens us, opens the way for us to have a good relationship with God and a good relationship with our neighbors. Break the law, and you break the relationships. Keep the law, and you keep the relationships. The royal law hangs together in kingdom living where we all love God and love other people. And we do that because God has first loved us and because he's at work in us. Now James closes out our text for tonight by telling his audience to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. This is the flip side of one of Jesus' beatitudes. In Matthew 5, 7, it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. But James is giving us the flip side of that. Cursed are those who are not merciful, for they will not be shown mercy. This is a heavy burden for us to bear, especially in light of what James has just said about if you break one part of God's law, you've broken the whole thing. It'd be nice if we could kind of push this away and put the burden on someone else. But this thing keeps coming back to us. Now, James is a favorite book for a lot of people in the world today who espouse liberation theology. At core, the basic idea there is that the rich are responsible for all the trouble in the world and the poor and oppressed have the right to be liberated and to have justice done for them. Now, that's something we need to pay attention to and it's a significant theme in James that we do need to care for the poor and the oppressed. But the wrongs in our world go much deeper than our socioeconomic structures, and they go into our own sinful hearts. One of my professors in seminary used to be a missionary in Latin America, and he would do Bible studies with these laborers who would work 14 or 15 hours a day cutting sugar cane and doing other really hard labor out on the farms. And he'd just do Bible studies and talk with these guys about what they found there. And when it came to the treatment of the poor, these guys were all over. They were ready to sound a loud chorus against rich, exploitative landowners. These land barons mistreated their workers. They oppressed their employees. They profited from the misery of others. And these laborers, well, they were right to complain about that situation. But when it came time for them to be in a position of power themselves... Even these oppressed, downtrodden people turned into oppressors. New workers to the area were treated with suspicion and a hostility. Women and children were beaten up and abandoned without a care. People who were put in positions of supervision or management started stealing from the people who were underneath them, even if they used to be friends. Even people who rightfully shake their fist at the discrimination and favoritism that others show, when they get a little bit of power, they use those same fists to drive others into the mud. Earlier in the service, when we read that story of the unmerciful servant, it gave us a picture of what James is talking about. If someone has been forgiven of a debt beyond count, and they still can't forgive a tiny little IOU and show a little bit of grace, what can be done with them? If someone has been shown infinite mercy and yet can't be merciful themselves, what hope is there for them? And the sad truth is that there is no hope for someone like that. 
And the even sadder truth is that we are all like that. We can't do what's right. We continually act in sin. We get unrighteously angry. We show favoritism. We continually set ourselves up as judges over other people. We pass judgments on them that we aren't worthy to pass. And we don't forgive when we should. We shake our fists at people who do us wrong. But even as we do that, we do wrong ourselves. Now, if James stopped there, this would be a pretty awful, depressing passage. But then James gives a final proverb of hope in verse 13. Mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a little phrase, but it's got a strong message. This, this is a loud proclamation of truth. In this saying, mercy is declaring triumph over judgment. Mercy is crowing in triumph over judgment. Mercy is boasting that it has conquered judgment. The boasting of mercy is that it conquers over judgment. Now, this is often true even just on the human level. If you show someone mercy, you may get mercy back in return. If you help someone out now, they may help you out down the road. But where this really gets going, where James really has traction, is that this is true on the divine level too. Mercy triumphing over judgment is one of the fundamental realities of our faith. God could have chosen to do away with all of us. He could have chosen to leave us in the shabbiness, in the unpleasantness, in the blah of our lives and our sin away from him. God could have washed his hands of us and walked out on us. But instead, God graciously chose to save us. God's mercy triumphed over judgment. In response to our own law-breaking, when we could have, when we should have, but under judgment, Christ's life and death prove God merciful. God accepts us as his beloved people, as his chosen favorite children. The mercy of our glorious God triumphs over our false wealth and over our real poverty. In Christ, God is merciful to us sinners. In Christ, God grants us mercy instead of judgment. And so in Christ, we are free from the need to play favorites and to curry favor. Christ has set us free to love God and to love all of our neighbors. Let's rejoice in the mercy of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ and let us show that mercy to others in everything that we do.